welcome to episode six of Somewhere of the Vulture. My guest today is a writing instructor for the Kubert School, lettering instructor for the Comics Experience, and a very pro- prolific comics You'll edit that out. Has had works published with DC, Vertigo, Marvel, Image, Dark Horse, Dynamite, Action Lab, Electric Comics, uh, Onishi, Red Stylo. Welcome, Erica Schultz. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a very weird world we're currently living in, The especially within the, the realm of the comics world. Uh, hope you're doing well. Hope your husband and your cat, everybody's doing uh, doing good. Uh, what's it like? The cat's out- happy I just fed him, so. <laughs> you know, fat, happy, and stupid is basically like, you know, his, and sleeping. Those are like his, his four speeds. Well, that's, that's, that's good. Uh, that's a good life to live. Yeah, I know. If, if only we were all that, uh. You know, if only we were all that lucky. Got back in contact with you, getting back into this podcast world. Uh, first person I had on was your pal and uh, collaborator, uh, Claire Connolly. It was great to talk to her. Uh, and uh, it's been, I don't even know exactly how many years it was, but the last time we talked, we talked about M3. And since then, you've been a busy bee. Uh, yeah, I have. M3 was, wow. I mean, it's it's still, you know, my baby and... You know, I, you know, I, I try not to pick favorites, uh, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, M3 was, we launched M3, the first two issues was back in 2010. So it's going on 10 years ago. Wow. That's, that's quite a, been a while. a hell of a ride. Yeah. We're doing, we're doing okay. You know, things are kind of crazy, but my husband and I are both very fortunate to be able to work from home. All the classes that I teach have, have all gone remote. Um, so we've both been very fortunate that we've been able to uh, to pivot that way. Um, my, you know, partner in crime, Claire, unfortunately, is considered a, a uh, essential worker. So unfortunately, she has to go to work um, still. You know, I try and keep in contact as, as often as possible. She only lives like 20 minutes away from me. I, I knew that both of you guys were in uh, New Jersey. I didn't know that you were yeah. that close, though. It used to be farther away, but um, but she probably in the last couple of years, she moved, you know, about 20 minutes away. We were laughing because I was like, wait a minute, you live where? Really? <laughs> like, dude, I can make it there in like 20 minutes. She's like, yeah, I know. She uh, her sister, uh, Paige, who's also an illustrator, and I we would try and get together as, as often as possible before, you know, insanity struck. So yeah. it'll be a while before I get to see Claire in person again. Well, you got to be careful out there. Yes. Especially, definitely. I mean, it's it's crazy. I think that not to get off on a tangent, but just the amount of information, misinformation, just the things that have gone on in the media. It's just been it's been wildfire. I don't want to like I said, I don't want to get lost out in that field. But uh, a very weird time to try to find scraps of, you know, safe, like safety to believe into, you know. Some, uh, a friend of mine made a point, I don't know if it was a CBR article, but there was an article about, you know, Superman, the movie and things like that. And he made a point in saying, you know, if there's ever a time for a film about a character whose number one thing is hope, like, <laughs> this is the time, people. Exactly. Quit dirtying up and trying to uh, make him anything other than what makes him great. You got to be in, you know, a practically slate gray uniform to be able to you know say you're gritty and edgy (laughs) i think that uh that's always such a strange thing when it's come to superman and what makes him great i mean just his primary 
colors alone changing the you know the uh, the costume to be you know to look good on film and all that and I was like listen you people you just don't get it you know he's so pure and that's the thing that's kind of the thing that's so Schnick is the big blue boy scout oh definitely definitely the big blue boy scout I was actually going to hit this later but since Superman has already come up we lost a legend here recently uh, Denny O'Neill. And uh, one of the things that, that I had not realized looking at all the work that you've done, the first time that uh, we got to uh, talk, we talked quite a bit about Neil Adams and uh, your work in, uh, I believe it's Continuity. Or Continuity Studios, yeah. Okay, there you go. Uh, that you actually did some color assists on the re-release of uh, Superman versus Muhammad Ali, and I did not realize that, but... Uh, of course, written by by Dennis and 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 drawn by Neil. So, uh, that would say that, that's that's pretty awesome. I I just wanted to kind of like bring some attention to that. Just uh, I didn't know if you got any actual working experience with Denny, and just wanted to give you opportunity if you had to maybe say something. Unfortunately, never had the opportunity to meet Denny O'Neill. Um, I have heard nothing but great things from other professionals who had the chance to not only meet him but work with him. Um, as a fan, I would say that Denny probably is one of the most prolific writers and not just, you know, in terms of volume of work, but in terms of, um, quality of work, like he wrote comics, you know, people sort of denigrate comics as like, oh, just funny books, but he wrote comics that were literature and he elevated you know, something that you would just think, oh, this is just a dumb newsstand funny book. He elevated it to a level of self-awareness, to a level of political awareness, which is why I kind of laugh when people are like, keep your politics out of my comics. It's like, all right, well, <laughs> don't read anything. Don't read anything by Denny O'Neill or, you know, don't read anything from the 70s, right. you know, kind of thing. Um, but he he really he elevated comics. Um, he was a an amazing writer. And again, I, you know, it's sad that I didn't have the opportunity to ever meet him, but, um, it is wonderful that, that he brought the, the work that he did into this world. And it's a sad day because, you know, we could always use more art in this world. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just, uh, it was very, uh, I don't know, fortuitous maybe that, uh, the first time we'd spoke, I had literally, I think it was less than maybe even less than six months that I had actually gotten to meet Neil. And that was, uh, you know, huge. I think in the, in the same day I got to meet Neil and I got to meet Stan Lee and I was just like, wow, that's, that's, that was a, it was a good day. And, uh, so, uh, I don't know. I just wanted to, uh, pay some respects to him and, uh, and see what you had to say. So I appreciate that. Uh, now coming in to, this podcast world again and looking through projects, you know, I, I hopped into Comixology and signed up for Un Unlimited and then boom, right there. As soon as I logged in was Erica Schultz and Forgotten Home. So I was like, <laughs> I definitely, definitely have to talk to her. So I've uh, read a couple interviews, listened to a podcast or, or two with uh, interviews with you. And uh, everyone always wants to talk about the aspects of making comics, but for me, once I got into the series, I have to say that personally, this is probably one of the most personally uh, touching comics that uh, I've read in uh, in quite a while. 
Uh, you know, I'm not a single mother, but I am a single father that mm -hmm. has daughters that was in the U.S. Army. I actually was married to a gal from Montana. So this entire book. <laughs> I, I wrote this just for you, Tim. <laughs> but I was just like each each little thing. I was like, I feel like I belong in this book, you know. So uh, first off, I re really enjoyed the book. And um, really uh, just can't say enough good things about uh, the characterization and the relationships, how much it just really it just pulled me in just from something simple like, you know, children getting kidnapped. And, uh, you know, my oldest daughter literally just turned 11 and, and we're going to middle school next year. So the dynamics of the relationships, uh, I just really love this book. I'm glad it, it, it really hit a chord with you. Um... I'm not a parent. I'm uh, an aunt and a godmother. So I don't have that physical sort of connection with kids, but there are a lot of kids in my life that I care very, very deeply about. You know, somebody made a joke about how all my stories prior to this were characters with daddy issues. So I had to <laughs> write a story about a character with mommy issues. I wanted to write a flawed character. I wanted to write a real character. It's, you know, you can never accuse Lorraine of being a Mary Sue, you know, like <laughs> no. you can, you can never accuse even Joanna or even Queen Ronnie because they all have very distinct motivations. They are all related. They are very strong, some more pigheaded than others, but as much as they have things in common, there's a lot that sets them apart. You know, something that's always sort of been in my life is this idea of how your past will inform your present and your future and not in a way that it's like, you know, you're going to let your past rule you, but past experiences, uh, past traumas, past good things, bad things, everything. If you kind of ruminate on those and look at things that you've done in the past and take that as lessons, then how you move forward in the present and the future, you're sort of making informed decisions based on your past. Um, I dealt with how your past informs your present and future, especially in 12 Devils Dancing. So I wanted to show that, you know, Lorraine is, she's got a lot of baggage. Everybody here has a lot of baggage, but Lorraine definitely does. And she's sort of, she's a veteran of wars on two fronts. You know, she's a veteran of the war at home and she's a veteran, you know, she comes to the earth and she's swept up in a war here because the only thing she ever knew to be was a soldier. So, you know, she leaves home to escape one war to then get swept up in another. And that really not only affects who she is, but her relationship with her daughter significantly. When looking at the character of Lorraine, the one thing that really struck me was, you know, transitioning back to her home that she came in guns blazing because that's what her skill set had allowed her to do in our world. When she went back, she tried to attack just as aggressively. And then all of a sudden, the things that she had leaned on, you know, were muted. I always find it very interesting when you people find a way to take characters and show that they have that, you know, they're very resolute and they have this very tangible thing for them that they depend on. And then good storytelling is always, 
taking those things away and putting them in that situation and then watching them try to figure it out. So I, I, I liked what you did with her, you know, in, in that regard. If we were talking about Superman. I mean, Superman in Argos in on Krypton, he's not Superman. You know, when Lorraine is on Earth, she has these, you know, fantastical abilities that make her somebody special here. But when she goes back home, she's nobody special, you know, with the exception of being a princess, being a daughter. Yeah, of her birthright. Yeah, her birthright. Aside from that, her skills are no more impressive than anybody else. The only thing that makes her really exceptional is that birthmark on her ankle. With uh, Queen Ronnie, if you get into the mind of a villain, that villain does not think that they are the villain because of their convictions and the way that they see the world and what they think is appropriate to do. I really liked her character arc, too, because if you go back, you know, when uh, her and uh, her sister, Krillista, and you showing those flashbacks and the conversations that they had and her talking about being pure blood and all those things, then you see when Joanna comes back, or actually comes to the first time to... Uh, Janata? Janata. I don't okay. even know. It's, okay, I'm just making it's sure. Just, it's a whole lot of made, made up words. <laughs> now, actually, what I do is I literally, like, I, I type in specific words and phrases into Google Translate, and I start flipping through languages and if a word looks cool i'm like yeah that'll be that that'll work <laughs> <laughs> so janata i think means and i'm not even pronouncing it right but i think it means planet or or like home or something like that and like albanian or you know a language that i've never okay. been i've never even been exposed to but i mean it does the job there you go i think what i got lost there for a second in my brain but you got Joanna that comes back and Queen Ronnie is pushing her to the forefront to be her heir. But just a couple issues ago, she was talking about pure blood. Now you have someone who's half her and then half human and still so quickly, all depending on, you know, what her goals were and what worked for her, how quickly she changed in some of her ideology just to get what she wanted. And I really enjoyed how she was very reminiscent of the Disney evil queens in that, you know, vanity and the way that she looked and she was using her magic in that, like you said, she was just very flawed, but very determined and willing to what use whatever means possible. She's opportunistic. Ew, I mean, she's a narcissist, but she's also opportunistic. I was speaking on a podcast the other day and they brought up a good point, you know, this idea of pure blood, then why is Lorraine being having an arranged marriage with someone who's never had magic before? Right. Because he is pure. He is 100% pure blood. And they can, you know, it's almost like a patent of nobility. You know what I mean? They can trace back his family. They know he's 100% pure blood. So therefore, that's the person she's going to marry, despite the fact he doesn't have magic and didn't have magic as, as a child or a teenager like everyone else does. So Rani will, she will change the rules to fit whatever narrative she wants Mm -hmm. at any time. So this idea of my daughter, Lorraine, is going to marry a pure blood, despite the fact that he doesn't have magic. Okay, fine. I know that whatever heir comes from this union is going to have magic because this is a royal line. You know, she wasn't, Rani wasn't worried about that. But when Joanna ends up being fathered by a human, 
as long as she has magic, Randy's like, okay, I can, I can work with this. I can work with this. <laughs> she's got the mark, which means she will have magic forever. She's got the mark. She's royal. We got this. We, we can work with this. Also, I mean, you know, Joanna is, is going to be 15. I was a 15-year-old girl 20 years ago. I know that every day is a tumultuous maelstrom of decisions that are, <laughs> you know, swirling in a cauldron of hormones. You just add a dash of resentment for your mom in there, and it's just, it's like TNT. You know, Joanna is not opportunistic. She's just so lost. And that's how a lot of teenagers feel. They just feel lost. And they look to their parents as infallible. Parents are not. I remember I was 17 years old. I'm sitting at the breakfast bar of my best friend's house. And I was living with them for a time because my mom and I weren't getting on. I remember sitting at the breakfast bar talking to my best friend's parents, who are still like my surrogate parents to this day. And I'm like, Marilyn, this is such garbage, blah, 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 blah. I can't believe mom did X, Y, and Z, whatever. And she turns and she looks at me. She goes, you do realize that your mother's a human being, right? It was literally like, I look at it 20 years, you know, 25 years after the fact. And I'm like, it was the stupidest revelation in the world. But it was a revelation. It was absolutely a revelation because you look at your parents as if they are these, you know, they're the ones with all the rules. They're the ones with all the power. They are supposed to be some paragon of fill in the blank. And to have a parent turn around and say to me, we're human. We screw up. We try not to. We try. We certainly try not to show you we screwed up. Right. But it happens. And that literally just mind blown like that scene from scanners, you know, like <laughs> I, it was, it was such and and to this day, I will joke with Marilyn about that. Like, I'll say something like I, you know, my brain just exploded at that moment. She's like, yeah, I know. Cause you know, you dumb kids thought that we were just, you know, everybody knew everything. So yeah, I mean, kids don't think that they most certainly don't think that um, unless someone literally just smacks them in the face with that. <laughs> And so Joanna hadn't had that. It was just, you know, mom's being a pain. She's, you know, not letting me go out with my friends. She's making us move again. She's doing this. She's doing that. You know, she's not giving me all the information about these abilities that I have. You know, she just basically makes makes it all out to sound like it's some stupid fairy tale. Well, guess what? This place is real. Not only is this place real, but I'm a prince. I'm a freaking princess here. Give me my purple unicorn and, <laughs> you know, you know, kind of thing. So, I mean, it's, right. this, it's this ultimate idea of like, well, why did you lie to me, mom? You know, when Lorraine tries to explain to her, like, you don't understand how manipulative your grandmother can be. It's like, no, no, no. Why don't we talk about you manipulating me, mom? And, you know, kids always want to deflect. And so instead of like stopping and taking a moment and saying, yeah, you're right. I don't know who this lady is, but I know she's got a birthmark on her le on her neck that looks like the one on my arm. And she tells right. me I'm a princess. And like I said, like Joanna's not opportunistic. She's just a kid. Someone dangles candy in front of you. You're going to jump for it. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so she's she's being presented with this. You know, and this is basically how Rani got a bunch of kids here. They're being presented with a, a, an option of I'm giving you control. I'm giving you a choice. 
And how many kids don't think they have a choice when it comes to like living with their parents or anything like that? You know, I'm giving you a choice. I'm giving you the ability to take your life into your own hands. A lot of kids jump at that. And that's what Joanna did. What's that phrase? All that glitters isn't gold. Right. Um, and then reality comes. You did well, in my opinion, for what it's worth. Well, um, I appreciate that. When you, when you open a sentence with you did well, I'm like, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> you created a very tense set of circumstances for those characters. And it was just very enjoyable to all of a sudden, you know, Lorraine has done the best she can in a foreign place to carve out a place for her. And you see a lot of those single parent mistakes, almost like the sin of omission. Like when the time come and someone else revealed it to her, then all of a sudden they're pitted against each other. She's out looking for clues to solve a missing persons case. And at the same time, her own daughter goes missing. So like just those constant things that we're not perfect, but you know, we care and how even when we care desperately for the people that we love, we can still make these very wild turns to the left or to the right. So you have that. And then once again, you're talking about Joanna being hard against her own mother. But then Queen Ronnie, she didn't know what to do with her either, you know, because she yeah. was like, you don't have any of these things because Lorraine had behaved in a better manner, at least in following her duty and, and knowing the customs and all that. So she really had no idea to do it. So you got two different generations, both failing miserably to control this child. It was good stuff. Well, thank you. One of the things about writing this was basically everyone says, I'm right, you're wrong, especially when it comes to parenting or when it comes to family or things like that. And there's a lot of gray. And I think we've sort of come to a place where everyone has an opinion about everything. And that's fine. Everyone is absolutely entitled to their opinion. But especially when it comes to raising your kids, I know that that's like a super contentious thing. So Lorraine's idea was, okay, I rebelled against my mom because my mom was so draconian. Like my mom was so strict, I rebelled. So my daughter's never going to rebel against me because <laughs> I'm going to be a cool, I'm going to be the cool mom. Right. And because I'm the cool mom, my daughter will never rebel against me. Not at all taking into account the fact that that rebellious streak is in you, Lorraine, that you are passing <laughs> on to your daughter, you know, just your, your entire life is one big rebellion. <laughs> Yeah. And you just think, well, you know, if I'm if I'm the cool mom, then maybe I won't suffer the same fate. You know, I remember, you know, my mom used to and I put it in air quotes, curse. It's the mom's curse. I hope you have a child as terrible as you or I hope you have a child <laughs> as, as annoying as you are, whatever. I mean, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like the kid's curse kind of thing. You know, like Lorraine was a handful, despite, like you said, having played by the rules for, for the most part, she was a handful. Why wouldn't she have a kid who was a handful? You didn't see that coming? <laughs> for me personally. I told you, I wrote it just for you. <laughs> I listen, well, you know, it, it's funny when you see your fears manifested in a story and you go, ooh, ouch, that very easily could be the way things end up. So you immediately start 
going back to the drawing board and start trying to come up with different thoughts, different aspects. And, you know, my daughters are very different, the completely uh, different set of challenges. Reading the book, I'm glad that by the end, lessons were learned. You know, resolution is something that you don't get to experience always in life. So I'm glad you didn't leave me, you know, broken, lying on the floor crying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there was there was actually there was a there was a different ending originally. Uh, There were a couple of different endings because when um, and I can't say enough about Mariku Cresta, the artist, she's she's phenomenal. She really is. Matt um, Emmons did a great job with colors as well. Um, Mariku did a did a really great job sort of visualizing everything. And um, I had had probably up to issue four done, uh, written before Marika came in. When I was moving toward the rest of the book, um, you know, because originally the, the story was always eight issues. And when I was working with Comixology, they were thinking, oh, well, can you see if you can get it down to like five or six? And I thought, yeah, I could. But I, you know, I would have to cut out some of the the side bits that I really, really enjoyed writing, like Trader and Zagal and Bajak mm-hmm. and you know, these side characters like Deco is basically the face of the, the, you know, he is Deco is the face of children warriors everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, I would, I would have to find a way to cut that out. Um, and we went back and forth and we talked about it and I, and I, I guess I pled my case well enough because comiXology was like, you know what, do it, tell the story you want to tell. <laughs> and I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to them for allowing me to tell the story that, you know, we really wanted to tell from the get go. So as I was, you know, writing it, there was the original ending that was by all means not a happy ending at all. And I kept changing it and changing it and making a little happy. And and even the ending that it has isn't isn't a Hollywood happy ending. Um, oh, no. It's a, it's it's a resolution, but it is not a happy ending. And so I kept changing things and changing things and changing things more. And it went from being like a very dark ending to being what it ended up being, which is, you know, things have been resolved, but there's still a lot of hurt. And I, and I didn't want to ever make it a Hollywood ending because you can't deal with a war. You can't deal with the injustice of what happened and then just sort of shrug it off and, Oh, everything's fine now. You know, there has to be some type of people have to feel the loss and they have to be allowed to feel the loss. Coming towards the end, I guess sticking the landing is always the terminology that comes to my brain. But I think that what you've won throughout the battle, especially, you know, within the context of the story that you told, you might not it might not have to be be the prettiest ending, but you've arrived at some some sort of balance. Yeah, I mean, I I sort of wavered back and forth between the goofy and, you know, like there was one. Uh, there was one ending where Martin, who was her um, her coworker, knocks on the door at the end, and you know Trader answers the short uh, answers the door shirtless, you know, kind of thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I was like, that has no place in this. It was a fun little fanfic that I, you know, two page mm-hmm. fanfic that I wrote at the end. But it really, it, it would have totally destroyed the, you know, that would have been a completely different story. That was a lot more sort of romantic and goofy, even though there is, you know, some some romance that weaves its way in this. But I always go in and this is what I always do. I always go in. I have everything plotted out and I'm like, 
oh, I've got it all and it's all organized and blah, blah, blah. And then I start writing. And once you start writing a story, it comes alive. And when it's alive, it's organic and organic things change Mm -hmm. and they go through changes. And even with M3, the ending of the second story arc for M3 actually was very different from the original ending. I originally had three story arcs for M3, but the ending of the second one killed my third one. But I mean, that's just the way the story took me, you know, and sometimes you fight it and sometimes you don't. And when I, I think when you fight it, a reader knows, like a reader can feel it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So this one sort of started creeping up on me. And then I decided, I was like, you know what, let me see if I can make this work. I said, "Eh, you know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not terrible. It's not the original (laughs) ending. You know, not something with a, you know, nice, sexy shot of a shirtless dude, (laughs) but it works. And I think it's plausible. I mean, as plausible as it can be, you know, dealing with another, you know, universe world where people have magic, you know. I really enjoyed it because it's so much uh, emotional in it that I, you know, related to. And like you said, not only that, but the backdrop of this entire story was very relevant in the times that we are in currently and how that we see others and how we judge and we find their value and how the queen was just completely wrong and uh, how she saw the other race of people. Right now, it's just a very, very good story to have uh, shared in. So thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird. Like I, I pretty much wrote this story mostly as it is, with the exception of the ending, back in like 2014, 2015. Um, so these ideals of, you know, like injustice, what is, you know, what constitutes your family going back and, and sort of having to not seek revenge, but you, you sort of having to, to sort of have a reckoning with your past. You know, these are all things that I that I thought about and worked on you know, years ago. And I didn't anticipate them being as relative specifically to today. I kind of Mm -hmm. thought the idea of, you know, having a reckoning with your past is kind of perennial. I mean, this kind of happens, you know, whenever. Um, I didn't realize that it, you know, that this particular moment is something that is super specific to that. But I do hope that, you know, people don't just read the story and think, oh, this is something that's just, just, relevant now because of of the time that we're living in, as opposed to something that sort of has these moments that can't, you know, that people can relate to whenever, like in 20 Mm -hmm. years, if somebody picks this up, I want people to be able to relate to it, whether or not, you know, they're, they've lived through this time. Like I, I love it if your daughters were able to pick it up in 20 years and, you know, being as young as they are, they might not really remember what's going on now, but be like, oh yeah, I can totally relate to that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, well, I think that's very universal. I just I guess I in, in what I was thinking of, you know, just just simple things like that. It's a you know, it was released digitally. And right now the comics world is, you know, just very strange with people even being able to get their hands on books. You know, it's just going to shop. I lucked like, out on that one. That, yeah, that, I mean, that was just, not something that I thought I was going to look out on, but I did. So, yeah, it's just I don't know. It's just it's timing. I just it just to me seemed uh, seemed special. But I but like you said, at the same time, very universal. And I don't think that it's something that won't age well. It just uh, I've been so reflective during this time 
uh, with everything that's been going on. So it just, uh, for me and where I'm at personally, it just, it just seemed like a lot of things kind of coalescing. Uh, so I, I just, it helped me just love it even more. So I'm, I'm glad that you, that you found that even though it's about a single mom, you still found some, some relevance in it because that's important. I think, you know, a lot of people will say, Oh, well you have to only create comics about people that are just like you, or you have to only, you know, consume comics about people who are just like you. And I, and I think that that there are a lot of amazing comics that have nothing to do with anybody. If that's the case, then guess what? No one's ever reading a super, a Superman comic. ever again. <laughs> no one's reading Superman. No one's reading saga. Nobody's reading all the books that they love to read because they're all about these, you know, incredible worlds and incredible universes and kind of the whole idea of storytelling is to create a, some type of an emotional connection. You know, like the reason why Martian Manhunter works is not because everybody on earth is a shape-shifting green Martian. It works because everybody on earth has felt isolated, has felt lonely, has felt like nobody understands them. The reason why Superman works is because everybody's always felt as if they don't belong, that, you know, no one understands who they are because no one really no one can really know who they are. There's a universality to these particular storylines that I hope to sort of bring my stories into, you know, like, I mean, even going all the way back to M3. Yeah, I hope you're not an assassin. (laughs) so I hope, I hope you don't, you don't sort of feel a connection to the story because of that. But if you feel a connection to the story, because you have a guy who's going through some, you know, uh, sort of a transition at work and, you know, everything that he sort of always thought that he was really, he isn't. And then you have this woman who always thought that she was doing the right thing, even in a wrong way. And she learns that what she's been doing is wrong this whole time. So then it then it becomes a question of, okay, well, if if I built my entire identity on these particular things, then what happens when someone tells me that that's not the status quo, that that's not the way it really is? Am I no longer who I think I am? Wow. Yeah. And that's something I mean, whether you had this conversation with yourself as a teenager, you had this conversation with yourself as an adult, people coming out people realizing gender identities, realizing who they want to love and things like that. I mean, these are things that happen all across. It could happen at age one. It could happen at age 91. Right. You know, so somebody somewhere has always felt this way. And I think that's why these stories, you know, resonate with people, because even if it's just a small shred, there is a shred of something that people can hook onto and say, I felt that way. Even if it wasn't the exact same situation, it's the emotional situation of it. Like, um, I like to say that there are a lot of stories that I write that are emotionally autobiographical. Mm -hmm. Particulars, the sequence of events might not be exactly what happened in life, but the feelings of the characters, the whether it's elation or despair, whatever, that feeling of those characters is what's autobiographical, emotionally autobiographical. And I think that, you know, no matter what you are writing, whether it's supposed to be fun or 
angry or sad or horror or whatever, if you have some semblance of emotional autobiography in there, then I think that your audience is going to feel that and see that and find a way to connect with it. I mean, I agree. There's not much more I can add to that. (laughs) You're a man of few words, Tim. (laughs) You've given me your time and I'm extremely grateful. If there's anything that we can toss out to people here in the closing. If you have not picked up Forgotten Home, the uh, trade paperback edition is available for pre-order now on Comixology. If you already have Amazon Prime, Kindle Unlimited or Comixology Unlimited, you can read Forgotten Home for free. So do that and say nice things about it because it's an awesome book. And um, what else? This, this what is else? actually uh, the people that are listening to this now. It's actually be on the 26th. And I'm pretty sure that the trade of Forgotten Home comes out on the 23rd, right? Yes. So it came out three days ago for those that are listening. So definitely Um, go check that out. If you like horror, check out 12 Devils Dancing. If you like um, horror and crime thrillers, if you like crime thrillers with badass chicks, check out M3. Basically, I've got everything on my web store at um, ericaschultzwrites.com. You want to follow me on Twitter? It's Erica Schultz 42. You want to follow me on Instagram? It's Erica Schultz writes. And I think that's it. Well, like I said, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Tim. All of your links and social media information is going to be in the show notes. So for those of you listening, just click and uh, go check out Erica. Thank you so much for this. I appreciate your time. Uh, loved your book and just wish you the best. And, uh, Stay safe, and hopefully this fall, as this year progresses, this madness will start to subside, and things can get a little bit more normal in your world. (laughs) Fingers crossed. (laughs) But uh, that's it for this episode of Somewhere in the Wolf.